Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 39. We're going to spend one more uh, week away from Jeremiah before returning to that next Sunday. Uh, Psalm 39. We're going to read the entire psalm this morning. Beloved saints, this is God's word. Please give your attention to the reading of it. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Yahweh, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is to you, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Let us pray that God be pleased to speak to us through His Word. Your Word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet. It is our guide through the dark. It is wisdom. It is truth. It is ours to follow each day. Your Word is sweeter than honey and yet sharper than swords. It is healing and justice and it is ours to obey. Your Word is our understanding of grace, peace, and love. That is the reason we draw near to it. Speak to us through it, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Wednesday is New Year's, the generally recognized day for making resolutions. And you know what they are. If you haven't made them yet, I'll give you a quick list. Eat more healthy. Get more exercise. Spend less. Save more. Get more sleep. Read more good books. Uh, Learn a new skill. Take up a new hobby. Get a different job. Uh, We all know them. We've all made them. That's what we do on New Year's. Thursday is January 2nd, the generally recognized day for breaking New Year's resolutions. 
or maybe you go a bit longer, the third or the fourth, maybe the tenth. But keeping New Year's resolutions seems to be uh, the exception, not the rule. And I think we all know this. We all expect it. We even uh, grin when we make our resolutions, not expecting that we will really keep them. But there are more serious resolutions that matter more to our hearts. To read through the Bible in a year. To pray more. Lose our temper less. To serve more. To complain less. To be more thankful. To finally conquer that sin, that temptation that always seems to be stronger than you are. Those are the things that really matter. The things that we really long to do. And let's be honest. Sin is easy. Obedience is hard. And that's what's so painful. That's what's so discouraging. When you're a young Christian, you tend to think that your sin isn't that big. And obedience isn't that hard few months, maybe a year or two, you'll have this thing licked. But the longer you follow Jesus, the more aware you become of just how pervasive and how powerful sin is. And it's easy to start to feel hopeless, to give over to despair, thinking that you will never find victory, that you might as well surrender, that you're beat. And if you recognize yourself in those words, if that describes you, if you not only know your sin but often feel powerless against it, if you feel frustrated, overwhelmed, and incapable of conquering that sin, if that's you, then I have some good news today. But honesty requires me to qualify this. Good news does not equal easy news. See, we all want to be good. We all want to be righteous. We all want to be more like Jesus. But we don't want that to be costly. And that explains some of our prayers. They tend to be trite. We pray for comfort. We pray for things like, make me more like Jesus. But we don't add whatever it takes. But that's not how God works Discipleship is costly. Bonhoeffer famously said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. So true. He calls us to surrender all. He calls us to lose ourselves for Christ's sake. Now, far from bad news, that is good news. It's the best news. For it is only here that we can find hope. It's only there that we can find joy. And it's only here that that we finally find ourselves being made more like Jesus. As we pause this New Year's to meditate on Psalm 39, I simply want to maybe make one point, and it's this. The road to godliness begins with accepting the fact that only God can transform you and being willing to walk the road he calls you to, no matter how hard. The road to godliness begins with accepting that only God can cause the change 
accomplish the change that you desire and being willing to walk the road he calls you to. That's what we want to see uh, as we look at Psalm 39, a beautiful and honest psalm uh, this morning. I think we've all said something like this. Uh, I tried God's way and it didn't work. You want something, you want someone to change. Uh, Maybe your wife, your husband, your child, your boss. You want your life to change, your job to change. And so you look at what God calls you to do and you try it for a few days, maybe a week. And then you you realize you're still married to a sinner. Your children still let you down. Your boss is still unfair. Your life is still hard. And you say, God's way didn't work, as if the only reason to obey God is to make your life easier and more pleasant. As if God's job is to fulfill your expectations. Perhaps your goals are more noble. It's not somebody else that you want to change, but yourself. As we've talked about, you're frustrated with falling into the same sin over and over. And so you make a New Year's resolution. You buckle down. You try. You really try. But you still fail. And you say, God's way didn't work. And at the heart, these are all born of the same belief that that you can affect change in yourself or in others through your own attempts at doing the right thing. And that's where the psalm begins. The psalmist says he is determined this time not to let his mouth get the better of him as it has so often in the past. Surrounded by enemies, he determines that this time he will not be baited once more and lash out at them. He simply determines to be silent, to hold his tongue, and thereby avoid sin. It's kind of like our more spiritual New Year's resolutions. This year, I'm going to hold my tongue. So did it work? Well, then we get to the second part of verse 2. And things get worse. The fire burns within. And then verse 3, he speaks. He tried to control himself, but he failed. Once again, his sin gets the best of him. It's as if he's an observer in his life, unable to do what he wants to do. And you know what this is like. You know what it's like to try to hold your tongue until your anger is so white hot that you explode. It just forces us to ask, okay, so where does anger come from? (laughs) Yes, yes, there is a righteous anger that comes from watching God's honor be attacked. But let's be honest, that's not typically where our anger comes from. Our anger is usually kindled because we do not receive the respect that we think we deserve 
because we are not treated as well as we believe we should be. We get angry because someone does something that makes our life harder. Anger most often makes an appearance when we think too highly of ourselves. We think too highly of our righteousness. We say things like, why can't that person get his sin under control and be more like me? We think too highly of our worth. How dare she treat me that way? Or we think too highly of our rights. I should not have to deal with this. And yet eventually, we see through the facade of our own righteousness and our value, and then we see that once again, sin has bested us. And so what do we do? New resolution. We resolve to try harder this time and really get it under control. So we stuff everything down deep inside. But eventually, eventually it all comes right back to the surface and that fire burns once again and we speak and it's not pretty. This psalm might as well have been written this week. This is not a struggle that is foreign to us. We all know the battle of which it speaks, especially around the holidays. And we're tempted to respond. What's the use in even trying? We want to throw up our hands and say, it's just too hard. We've tried more times than we can count, and we've failed just as many. And we know that temptation to let despair consume us and devour us. But that's not where this psalm leads. There's a better road. Look at David's prayer in verse 4 through 6. He asked that the Lord would teach him just how small he is. Make me know my end, how fleeting I am. My lifetime is as nothing. What's the only cure for the anger of pride? It's humility, it's perspective. It's learning to see ourselves correctly as as God sees us. Now, that doesn't mean as worthless. See, that's the temptation as we think that David's saying, just show me how worthless I am, and that's not it. We are made in God's image. You are dear to God. You are his child. But what parent doesn't desire humility for his child? David understands that as long as he thinks that the answer to his sin lies within him, he will always meet with failure. Our pride leads us to invest in the wrong things and to value what ultimately doesn't matter or last. The Bible tells us over and over again that this life is temporary, that we're we're just passing through, that what really matters is that which is eternal, that which comes next, eternity. Verse 12, he describes us as sojourners or pilgrims in this life. 
We're, we're, we're travelers, not at home. And yet, what do we do? According to verse 6, we, we gather up wealth. We're like a, a, a wandering pilgrim who, who stops just for the night but builds a monument that he must leave in the morning. When you're always on the move and never at home, what's the point of building a monument? But that's what we do. We, we build these, these monuments to our pride. That might be your career, your personal wealth, your home, your garden. That's what we tend to do. We, we try to build a legacy out of that which we can't hold on to. Sometimes those legacies are, are, are less tangible. Things like relationships or reputations, being too invested in politics and the outcome of an election. Nations come and go. Fortunes are lost. Names are forgotten. The only thing that is eternal is God and his kingdom. Look at verse 6. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. That's what we need to learn. We have got to learn to let go of our idols, our, our monuments that we build to ourselves. And the only way that we really learn that is through discipline. A discipline that removes those idolatrous monuments. Look at verse 11. When you discipline a man, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. This is how the Lord teaches us the passing nature of this life. This is how we learn to let go of the things that don't last, the things that contribute to our pride. These impediments to humility, these, these barriers to true spiritual growth, the Lord removes. Because the Lord loves us, He's willing to remove these if that's what it takes to learn just how fleeting this life is just how small we are and how big he is. And that is good. And that goes back to where we began. Good news is not always easy news. If David is going to pray for humility, he must be willing to receive the Lord's discipline because this is how humility is taught. If he's going to pray, make me more like you, he has to be willing to say, Lord, whatever it takes. Because discipleship is costly. It's an invitation to come and die. Perhaps the reason we struggle to grow more in godliness is simply because we don't want to let go of the monuments we have constructed to our own pride the things that we value more highly than God himself. Now, if I'm not careful at this point, I might give you the impression that spiritual growth is in your hands, that that if you can just learn to master humility, new resolution this year, or that if you can just let go of what's dear to you, that you'll be like the spiritual equivalent of an Olympic athlete. That's not what I'm saying. Look at verse 7. 
My hope is in you, he confesses. Not, ah, now I've got it. See you next year, and boy, will I have some results. My hope is in you. This psalm does not point us back to ourselves and say, try harder. That's where it started, pointing out the futility of trusting our own strength. Look who receives the credit in verse 9. It's God who has done it. This entire psalm is trying to get us to do two things. First, it wants us to despair of thinking that we can conquer our battle with sin on our own. That it's just a matter of resolve and and coming up with a a good uh, action plan. Second, the psalm wants us to look at God as the one who is able to close the mouth of sin. As the one who can conquer and overcome the sin that continually gets the best of us. In fact, the the language of the psalm probably sounds familiar with how the Bible describes Jesus, doesn't it? Isaiah tells us he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. What David struggled to do, Jesus did. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When standing before earthly judges, when it would have been so easy for him to say something like, do you have any idea who you are talking to? He instead walked that road of silent submission because anything else would have jeopardized our salvation. It's precisely because we could not conquer our own sin and temptations that that God had to come into this world to begin with. In the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal God, enters into our temporary world. He took on flesh and blood. And though he was tempted in every way as we are, he never sinned. He lived the perfect life that we could not. And he willingly took our sin upon himself, bearing the consequences, the punishment that we deserve for our sin. That's why he had to be silent, because if he was unwilling to suffer for us, we would have to suffer eternally for our sin. So there he stood, silent before wicked men. He gave up his heavenly glory. He took on shortness of life. took on the form of a servant. He confessed that he was a pilgrim, a sojourner in this world, that that his kingdom was not of this world. He was on a pilgrimage. And so he would hold on to everything loosely. He suffered great pain in order to achieve something much greater, something that would not perish and disappear. That's what it means in verse 9 when it says, He has done it. God accomplishes what we cannot This is how he delivers us from the tyranny of sin. It's costly. I must be equally clear that to say he must do it does not mean how you respond to sin is unimportant. 
It's one thing to say, you don't have the power, you can't do it, you can't conquer sin, that Jesus must do it. It's one thing to say, it's quite another to say, so just go on sinning until Jesus takes care of it, you're good. Look at verse 8. We have to beg, as the psalm teaches us to beg, deliver me from all my transgressions. Help me. There's no contentment with sin here. There's only a holy longing that the Lord would vanquish it. In fact, it's only as you, you learn that you can't do it that you learn to humbly look to Jesus for strength. It's, it's only as you lose confidence in yourself that you learn to place your confidence in Him. It's only when you give up depending on yourself that you truly learn to depend upon Him. It's when you learn this that you finally understand that not everything the wicked say needs to be responded to. It's when you learn humility that your anger won't always get the best of you. You won't even feel like you need to vindicate yourself. You'll learn to hold your tongue, not because you're trying so very, very hard, but simply because you are content to belong to the Lord and not worried about being treated in a way that you think you deserve. Righteousness matters. But the road to it is is not one of self. It's not simply a matter of figuring out the correct wording to your New Year's resolutions. It's one of surrender. It's one of humility. And humility is learned through the discipline of the Lord. Affliction, then, is not proof that the Lord does not love you, nor is failure to conquer your sin proof that you don't belong to Him. The Lord will allow you to fail. He will bring affliction. He will remove things that are dear to you, because in all of those things we learn to place our hope in Him and not ourselves, the things we possess are our own strength. None of this happens quickly. This road is one that you will be on until you stand with your Lord in heaven. These are lessons you will have to learn over and over again. The Lord's discipline is good. And thankfully it's temporary. See, the Christian must learn to strike a balance between accepting discipline, and longing for relief. Notice how the psalm ends. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more, verse 13. Just as David prayed that the Lord would teach him humility, he also asked for relief that will come and that he will smile again. Because the discipline of the Lord is not an end to itself. It's the road we walk on our way to joyous glory but I hope you you notice that there's no answer at the end of verse 13. There's no verse 14. The psalm ends with a plea for relief, but it includes no answer, as if the Lord invites us to patiently wait with the psalmist. 
The Bible is not a sitcom. Neither is the Christian life. All of our problems can't be resolved in 30 minutes. Sometimes we cry out for relief and then we wait patiently. And really, that draws us to the Lord's Supper before us this morning. For what do we celebrate in the Lord's Supper but a silent Savior and His call for us to wait patiently for His return? As we look at the bread and the wine, images of Jesus' body and blood silently sacrificed on the cross, do they not evoke thoughts of patience and enduring. They don't, they don't give us thoughts or images of long life, wealth, comfort, and they certainly don't call us to believe that if we would just try harder, we can conquer our own sin. The Lord's Supper pries our eyes off of what we do and sets our eyes on what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished. In the Lord's In the Lord's Supper, we're first to confess with Psalm 39, you are my hope, for it is you who have done it. And that's why the Lord's Supper is something we receive, not something we do. The Lord's Supper is passive in the sense of what is accomplished. It calls us to confess that Jesus has done what we cannot It calls us to confess that our hope is in him and to celebrate his accomplishments. And it calls us to patiently await his return. The Bible tells us that we are to regularly observe the Lord's Supper until he returns. This is part of waiting. And we know that when he returns, he will take us Home, which means it reminds us that we are pilgrims in this world and it teaches us to long to be delivered from all our transgressions. It teaches us to remember that there is a day coming when what Jesus has begun will be made complete and we will stand perfect in heaven, no longer afflicted by our sin, no longer conquered by it, no longer struggling with it. All of this Jesus has accomplished for us. All of this is ours in him. And so he calls us to come, to eat, to drink, to receive, and to rest on him. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. And please pray with me. Our gracious God, our silent Savior, you who have silently endured all that we deserve, we marvel at your grace. We are humbled by it. And well, we should be. For you dwell in a high and a holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Teach us to see ourselves rightly. Teach us our end that we might know what is the measure of our days and let us know how fleeting we are that our days are a few handbreadths and our lifetimes is nothing before you. And in learning these things, may we find true contentment. May we learn to hope in you, to confess that you have done what we could not, that you deliver us from our sins. 
And in all of this, remove our prideful anger from us. Teach us true contentment that comes from finding our identity in Jesus. All of this we pray in the name of our silent Savior, a name unmatched in all creation. May he receive all glory, praise, and honor. Amen.